This content was created purely for entertainment and informational purposes. The creators of this vlog do not endorse drinking and driving, debauchery, underage drinking, public intoxication, speeding, street racing or any other form of delinquency. I'm just a guy, with a drink, talking about cars. Please don't take this sh** too seriously. So recently, while I was doing some research on Willie T. Ribs, and uh, that episode will 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 do it eventually, um, <laughs> I fell into one of those internet rabbit holes, and uh, what I found there was a person I, that I had never previously heard of, um, who I should have, you know, as a black person growing up in the '80s with a deep love for motorsports, I should have heard of this person, and the name I ran into was Cheryl Lynn Glass. Which so, also sounds like the name of an 80s R&B singer. Sure. Uh, no, that was Sherlyn. Right. But you know, I'm just saying. Different spelling. She could fit right in. Or like Evelyn Champagne King. So the no. three name thing. I never liked her. Never okay. liked her. Um, so who, or rather, who is or who was Cheryl Lynn Glass? Well, she was a black female sprint car and Indy Lights driver. Um, she died young in 1997 and is shrouded in mystery. It's 2021, and a few weeks ago was the first time I had ever heard her name or seen her photo. Same. Yeah. Now, fair warning, um, this story gets into intersections of race, class, and gender. There will be discussions of sexual assault, police brutality, white supremacy, and suicide. So if any of these topics are difficult for you, um, that's your trigger warning as the young folks say. Ooh, that's so much. Yeah. Okay, so where to start? Well, she was born on December 24th, 1961 in Mountain View, California. Her father was a vice president at Pacific Northwest Bell and her mother was a Boeing engineer. Now for you young people, uh, Pacific Northwest Bell is a telephone company back in the days when we had landline telephone companies, i.e. AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph, and the various regional bell companies, the big telephone monopoly. A big, powerful telecom company when big, powerful telecom company meant rotary dial telephones. Um, so I don't know exactly what kind of VP he was, but if you're a vice president at a regional bell, you're probably making pretty good money. Oh, yeah, they were rich, rich. And her mother was a Boeing engineer. And assuming that her, well, no, I know her mother's black because I've seen her photo. So um, her mother probably be, would have been one of the early black engineer, certainly black female engineers at Boeing, if not the very first. And I don't have any uh, direct knowledge of that, but based on my uh, corporate history with the Fortune 500 Engineering Corporation, um, Black female engineers in 1961 was not a common thing. But um, moving on, um, Cheryl, as mentioned, her parents were pretty high power people. Uh, Cheryl had an IQ of 151. So she wasn't no slouch. 
And at nine years old, she started a business making ceramic dolls, which she sold at Frederick and Nelson, which is uh, owned, which was a Seattle based high end retailer owned by Marshall Field. So uh, not cheap stuff. And to put that in perspective, she said in 1970, the dolls were selling for 150 to 300 bucks. So today that's roughly a thousand to two thousand dollars in nineteen twenty in uh, twenty twenty one money. So think about that. Um, she took some of the proceeds from her doll business, and she bought a quarter midget race car. And a quarter midget is basically um, a go kart sprint car, essentially. It's tiny. It's powered by what is essentially a lawnmower engine, although somewhat hopped up. And it's got a full roll cage, but it's got little go-kart tires. And that's what kids drive when they're first learning how to drive sprint cars. Did it say how she learned about the sprint cars? Like, how did she just decide, like, oh, let me get a sprint car? She saw it on the newspaper or on the news or something. She got wind of it through media and decided that's what she wanted to do. So she went and bought one. Okay. Um. She was the first girl to ever be rookie of the year. Um, and she was a regional or state champion for like five years running. She graduated high school at 16 years old because, you know, 151 IQ. And uh, somewhere in there, she moved up to half to half midgets, which is a bigger class of car, basically for kids over 100 pounds. And then um, by January 1980, 18-year-old Cheryl was featured in Ebony Magazine. Well, she's featured for racing or was she this was her modeling? No, she was oh, featured for the racing. racing. Racing against all racing against the odds. Amateur racer Cheryl Glass begins long drive to Indy 500. So this was January 1980 issue of Ebony Magazine. As a photo of her in front of her sprint car and uh, the trophy room and photos of her mom and her little sister. That's um, an impressive trophy room. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's like a two-page spread with photos, and Ebony was a national publication. I know um, mainstream media probably, you know, whatever, but um, among black households in 1980, Ebony was a big deal. We always had Ebony at my house, right next to the jet in the essence. Same. Um, so where were we? Uh, Ebony. Yeah, so at that point, she was majoring in electrical engineering at the University of Seattle, but she dropped out of college and turned pro. And um, yeah, so she was she was an accomplished young lady, to put it mildly. She did what we now call STEM outreach. She was a beauty queen. She was Miss Rainier Bank and was a Seattle Seafair princess. And the Seattle Seafair is sort of like a, a summer festival in the Seattle area. Uh, she designed wedding dresses and evening wear. She was a public speaker. She spoke at the National Bar Association and she spoke at the Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated National Convention in Detroit, which I think was 1986, maybe 84. I'd have to go back and research that. I'm not an AKA. Uh, she, was a, she was a Candace Award winner and the Candace Award is, was an award presented by the National Coalition of 100 Black Women. And just to put this award in some context, I'll give you a short list of some of the uh, recipients over the years. Uh, 
1982, Alice Walker. 1983, Suzanne DePaz. 1984, Lee Chase, uh, the New Orleans restaurateur. Uh, 1984, Rosa Parks. Yes, that Rosa Parks. 1986, Dorothy Height. Yes, that Dorothy Height. 1986, Susan L. Taylor, who was the publisher of Essence Magazine. Uh, 1986, Debbie Thomas, who was a speed skater. 1987, Cheryl Lynn Glass was awarded as a trailblazer. And other awardees that year were choreographer Catherine Dunham, uh, Coretta Scott King. Yes, that Coretta Scott King. Uh, other winners, Johnetta B. Cole, Althea Gibson, Winnie Mandela, Cicely Tyson, Condoleezza Rice. For the record, that's 1989 Condoleezza Rice, not uh, Bush 43 Condoleezza Rice. Mm, the shade. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 1990, Maya Angelou. 1990, Judith Jameson. Uh, 1991, former D.C. Mayor Sharon Pratt-Dixon, although I think at the time she was either the current DC mayor or the soon to become DC mayor in 1991. I don't remember exactly. Uh, 1991, Jocelyn Elders, former US Surgeon General. I think she was the Surgeon General at the time. And 1992, Maxine Waters. So a pretty accomplished list of women. And that's just a short uh, sort of who's who list of the Candace Award winners. Uh, she was in Ebony, she was in Essence. She was on uh, TBS cable. Uh, posthumously, there was a Speed Channel Black History Month vignette on her. And uh, so if she was so accomplished and so quote unquote famous, why had I not heard of her? What went That's wrong? the million dollar question. Well, she was a smart black woman at motorsports in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, you know, which whatever we want to say about race in this country and sexism in this country, that was a tough place to be for her at those times. Um, here's a quote from an article, um, quote from Al Unser Jr., who she raced against in 1980 in a sprint car race in Arizona. So Unser, I didn't know her that well, but she was a good driver. She was an abnormality at the time. A female driving sprint cars wasn't considered normal then. Um, she had a horrific crash during this race. And here's her description of the crash. The back end got loose, slid around, smacked the wall, and climbed a 20-foot fence. The car started rolling along the fence. 13 times it went over, and then it dropped back down on the racetrack and tumbled end over end three or four times. The reason I know the numbers is because I've seen the tapes so many times in slow motion. All the blood vessels were damaged in my eyes and I couldn't see for several hours. It damaged all the soft tissue, muscles and ligaments in my body. Unfortunately, they aren't very good at fixing stuff like that. It really messed up my face, head, neck, back, shoulders, and knees. I've had four knee operations trying to repair the ligaments. Once I realized I was still alive after all the bouncing around, I never doubted I would race again. Now that's where Cheryl and I differ. And granted, I've never driven a sprint car, uh, but with what little bit of motorsport background I had, I've always said, if I if I tumble a car, if I put a car on its roof, I'm done. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty bad accident. And I'm surprised that she's speaking so 
confidently like she's going to drive again because the um, soft tissue injuries are no joke. Nat- nature of sprint cars. Sprint cars tumble. Sprint cars are known to tumble. That's what they do. Uh, they're short. They're not terribly wide. Uh, they have a short wheelbase and they got that high roll cage and the ones with wings have that high wing up there. And if they tip, they just cartwheel. It's it's pretty ugly. Um, so in 1982, Cheryl got the chance to go to Indiana for a big time silver crown race, uh, the Holman 100, which is, it's not the big race. The big race is the Hoosier 100, but the Holman 100 is a big race. And it's at the Indianapolis Fairgrounds. Um, silver crown cars are similar to sprint cars, but different. And I'm not going to get into all those differentiations, but let's just say it's not quite the same thing. More importantly, that was a one mile track and not a half or quarter mile track, which makes a difference. Uh, Robin Miller is a longtime indie and open wheel uh, reporter, and he interviewed her back in 1982. And here's what he had to say. You don't throw someone... In a, into a sprint car on a mile track when all they've ever done is quarters and half milers. That's insane. I thought it was unfair to the kid. I'm sure qualified kind of poorly. She qualified 17th and she did start the race. She retired on lap nine. Officially, she was in 21st place. Uh, three cars retired ahead of her and 15 are listed as not qualifying. And she did do, uh, she did, you know, they do qualifying heat races there. So she did finish a race. Um, uh, Here's a contemporary article. Cheryl Glass, the 20 year old black female driver making her USAC debut, managed to make the main event after finishing 10th. She was the last car running in the 15 lap qualifying heat. She dropped out of the feature with mechanical problems. Um, Technically it was handling is why she pulled the car in. She said she couldn't drive it. Would that have been because it was well? No, like, is like that I just said, a mechanical failure, or is that is that no? Silver crown cars are just... different than sprint cars. It's a it's oh. a different handling, different type of setup, and on a mile track you're going faster than you would on a quarter or half mile track. So all those variables thrown in, um, I get the impression that she didn't get a lot of practice. So here's what really happened: uh, there was a car owner older guy who'd been around a while and he was having some sponsorship issues and he needed a way to bring some buzz to his team. He heard about Cheryl and he offered her the ride. Um, And I think he figured she had the talent because she had been doing quite well in the Northwest, but um, he knew that her being a black female in Indianapolis, um, driving a USAC car in 1982 would bring a lot of attention. And it did. It brought a ton of attention, certainly more attention than any other 21st place car that weekend. And all press is good press. So like you said, he knew what he was doing. Now in, in real life, um, you know, we all know the story. You're it's, it's the sports analogy. You're the best football player on your team in your County, maybe even in your state. And then you go to college. And when you get to college, you're 18 years old and you're a good athlete, but you're now dealing with 21 and 22, 23 year old red shirt seniors who are real good athletes. 
and you get an abject lesson in um, the difference between preparation and training and experience and skill combined with that athleticism that you bring in at 18 years old. Absolutely. Similar, similar thing like that. Um, You know, she strapped into a car that summer and she went on a racetrack with a couple of hall of famers, one of them being Gary Bettenhausen. Uh, And the guy who finished just one spot in front of her had 114 starts and six wins to his credit. This wasn't, this wasn't a, a track full of scrubs. These were these were the real deal. Um, and you could say she held her own considering she was a rookie brand new there who had never driven that kind of car on that kind of track before. But she did not take it well. Um, you know, for somebody like me, that would have been, eh, you know, win some, you lose some. But I didn't have five, six, seven years of unqualified success coming up the motorsport ladder when I was a teenager, like she did. So for her at 20 years old, somebody with 151 IQ, somebody who at 20 had already completed three years of college, um, that might've been somewhere between humiliating and humbling, you know, heartbreaking, who knows? Yeah, I'm still baffled that she, hmm, I'm wondering, you know, kind of knowing how it all ends, I'm wondering if this was sort of maybe the beginning of, and I know we'll get there, some kind of, you know, a mental health issue, because I'm surprised, oddly, like somebody with that intelligence, I'm surprised she dropped out of college to do this full time. And then I imagine maybe the the tape that's running in her brain, because she dropped out of college to do this full time, comes to the big leagues and then sort of fizzles hmm. yeah i mean and you know again we've heard this story before this is this is the kid that uh dropped out of school to go pro you know right only to get in cut. the league and 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 get your knee busted up right or you know whatever so that was 1982 and she sort of dropped off the scene for a minute and when she popped back up, it was 1984, and she gave uh, road racing with SCCA Can-Am a shot. And the Can-Am cars in 1984 were not the Can-Am cars of the late 70s. They were more; these were more like Formula 5000 cars with a with an enclosed body over them. But um, that was still some serious driving, and there were some some fairly big names in road racing in those events. Um, so in July of 1984, she went to Dallas. And the entry I can find, the listings I can find show two entries, which I'm a little confused by. I think it was the same race. I think what happened, she started one car. And for whatever reason, I don't know if she crashed or the car failed or whatever. But I think she then got in another car and... Well, here's what I got in the record. I showed July 7, 1984, Fair Park, which is Dallas. Um, SCCA Can-Am started 25th, finished 18th in car number 41, which was a Van Diemen. Uh, It says she completed six laps and status was did not finish. And then the next entry shows she started 26th, 
finished 26th in a number five Tolman car and completed zero laps. And it says did not start. So I'm thinking she must have wrecked or mechanically failed the car in some way, came back and somebody had a spare car and she jumped in that car and it wasn't running or couldn't get out of the grid apparently or out of the pit lane. Mm-hmm. So that was that. Um, in July 1985, she had an opportunity to try a Mickey Thompson stadium truck, which is sort of like a, a if anybody's ever seen Ivan Stewart's super off-road, it's that kind of truck. It's where you you take the big off-road desert trucks and you, you build a temporary course inside of a football or basketball arena and you have a race in there. Kind of like what you see with the motocross bikes. Uh, motorcycles. Monster trucks without the monster. Yes, but la- <laughs> lapping, lapping instead of flipping and crushing cars. But I, I like to say that these things are essentially a, a controlled crash for you know, 30 minutes at a time. But um, she did the test drive. And during the test drive, she crashed hard enough that they had to use the jaws of life to extract her from the vehicle. And I don't know if she was injured. I assume she wasn't injured too badly because she then crashed the backup truck. And if you can imagine, um, pros take these trucks and when they get to a jump, they floor it and they fly the truck, you know, 30, 40 feet linear distance in the air. Um, but road racers and circle track racers are not used to vehicles leaving the ground. So the way I understand the crash from a newspaper article I read is that she got to the jump, didn't know whether she should floor it or slow down, kind of half-assed it. And so the truck nosed in and flipped over, um, which again, kind of like sprint cars, stadium trucks crash. It's, it's what they do. It's what they're designed to do. A stadium truck is basically a glorified dune buggy with a truck-like body over the outside of it. It bears only a very passing resemblance to the production pickup truck that it quote-unquote represents. Mm -hmm. Um, And like I say, these these guys will jump, you know, 15, 20 feet in the air, 30, 40 feet linear distance and land without a second thought. That's, That's what they do. After that second off-road crash with the stadium truck, um, she didn't make that race, obviously. And she bought, through connections, she bought an old Penske PC6 IndyCar, and she started practicing at Seattle International Raceway because her goal was to get to the Indy 500. And so she still had that in mind. Um, Around about this time, she found a Cheryl Glass Designs headquartered in downtown Seattle. And she started designing wedding gowns and evening wear. And the the synthesis for this was she got married and she designed and beaded her own wedding dress, which was um, exquisite to say the least. And I've read somewhere that the thing was uh, uh, appraised at $98,000. And I don't know if I don't know if that's in 1986 money or 2020 money or what, but um, thousands and thousands of hand-sewn pearls. So yeah, depending on what the labor rate was, yeah, whatever. But anyway, the okay. photos photos of the dress, because Cheryl had been a model as well, um, photos of the dress got out in the Seattle area and um, people started 
wondering about the dress. And so she started a evening wear design company. This was also around the time that she started working with her dad on STEM outreach for inner city kids in the Seattle area. Uh, in 1990, with help from somebody within the Nissan Electromotive Group, and um, for those that don't know, Nissan Electromotive in the 1990s was basically Nissan's factory racing team for North America. Um, they designed all those IMSA winning uh, Nissan GTP cars. Mm. Okay, so um, she had some connections to that team, and somebody helped her buy an Indy Lights car. Or in 1990, they were, it was still called the CART uh, American Racing Series. And in 1991, the name changed to CART Indy Lights, but whatever. These are basically um, V6 non-turbo powered, slightly smaller Indy cars. Now, here's where we got to touch on one of these weird things from back then. Cheryl grew up racing circle tracks. Circle tracks is USAC, United States Auto Club. They control circle track racing in America up to and including the Indy 500 in those days. Um, Indy Lights and American Racing Series was a CART function, championship auto racing teams. Um, CART, it's a little difficult to explain, but I'll try to do it quickly here. In the 19, late 1970s, I think, the owners, the team owners within USAC, uh, your Dan Gurney's, your Roger Penske's, maybe your Carl Haas's, that might have been a little early for Haas, AJ, those folks, um, they had a problem with the race promoters and they said, okay, you know what, we're going to form our own thing. So the United States Auto Club was the sanctioning body championship auto racing teams was the owners essentially a union it wasn't a union but essentially it was a union the owners group got together and said okay it's great that you have all these races but you're not going to sell any tickets if you don't have our cars there and uh, they couldn't come to an agreement so cart split off on its own formed its own racing series with indy with what we now know as indy cars you know, four wheels, low to the ground, wings on the front and back, side pods. Looks kind of like a Formula One car, but not exactly. Turbocharged V8. Um, that was cart. USAC was, we drive sprint cars around in a circle. That's all we do. Cart said, oh, we do road races too. And we only drive on asphalt. So Cheryl was a circle track driver, grew up driving quarters and halves and sprint cars. She went to the Holman 100 in Indiana, which is the mecca of roundy round dirt racing. And I guess technically roundy round, roundy round asphalt racing too. Um, that didn't work out. So her plan B was to jump onto the cart side of the feeder ladder and work her way up that side. So she gets this Indy Lights car. And in the fall of 1990, she runs two events. Uh, that was Nazareth Speedway on October 7th, 1990. She started ninth, finished seventh. Uh, she won $2,000. Hmm. Uh, 1990. Okay, prize money. 
October. Yeah, well, yeah, it's professional racing, so there's there's prize money. Even at the uh, at the Holman Hundred, where she finished twenty first, she got four hundred bucks. Uh, let's see, da, 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 da. Laguna Seca, October twenty first, nineteen ninety. Boy, howdy! Um, she started seventeenth. She finished seventeenth. No money, no laps, did not qualify. Um, so Cheryl was experienced on ovals, and Na- Nazareth is an oval. Nazareth is in Pennsylvania. It's, uh, I think it's Mario Andretti's home track, maybe. Um, her oval driving experience helped her out there, and she was able to navigate her way through the race and finish the race and do okay. Uh, Laguna Seca is a road track. Not only is Laguna Seca a road course, Laguna Seca might be the nastiest road course in the United States. It's in Northern California, or I guess you could call that Northern California. It's in not Southern California. There you go. Uh, it's it's <laughs> right because there's nothing in between. It's Northern California or Southern well, California. I, I say it because it's south of uh, San Francisco. But essentially, it's in Northern California. Yeah, if it's not LA or San San Diego, then it's Northern Northern California, as far um, as I'm concerned. Laguna Seca, you turn left and right, and you go up and down hills. Sometimes at the same time, they got a turn there called the Corkscrew, which is I've done it on uh, Gran Turismo, and I find it terrifying even on the computer. I can't imagine doing it in a real car. Um, oh wow! Certainly not at Indy at Indy light speeds in a, in a road car, you know, in a, like a legit street car, like a Porsche or something, maybe, but in an Indy lights car, that's a, that's a tall task for somebody that's not born and bred into road racing. Um, and the finish shows, you know, uh, in the spring of 91, she ran two more events, April 14th at long beach street race. She started 18th, finished 17th. 14 laps completed and um, that was an electrical gremlin of some sort and then phoenix international raceway which is a oval i believe april 21 1991 and she crashed 30 laps into a 75 lap race um so here we start to see a pattern forming she gets in a car she crashes um, now in 1990 future champ car champion Paul Tracy was the man in Indy Lights in 1991 he was like he was the dude Robbie Buell was there PJ Jones was there um, they all went on to have significant racing careers Cheryl I won't say that was the beginning of the end but um, that was pretty much the beginning of the end because Phoenix was her last race ever. Um, now, what's interesting is while she was at Laguna Seca, she ran into Willie T. Ribs because that's his home track. And all black people know each other. Sure, that. Um, so actually, Willie's publicist spotted her and said, you need to go talk to her. So Willie went over and talked to her. And here's a, here's a quote from an article. Per Willie T. Ribs. I don't know him. I shouldn't be calling him Willie, huh? Um, I mean, maybe. 
per Mr. Ribs, um, there's more chances of a black woman being an astronaut than a than in a race car. I knew who she was before I met her, knew she'd run sprint cars, and knew there'd been none like her before, and there's been none since. A black woman will be president of the United States before another Cheryl Glass comes along. We'll get He's back. almost right. We'll get back to <laughs> Willie later. Um, so yeah, like I said, she ran Long Beach and Phoenix in 1991 with lackluster results. Um, and she crashed out in Phoenix and that was her last race. So that's where things went downhill. Or I guess the beginning of the end or. Well, the beginning of the beginning of the end. The beginning of the beginning of the end. August 1991. Cheryl's home was burglarized. Now, um, despite the fact that she's a black woman and the burglars were white men and that there were swastikas and Nazi propaganda scrawled on her walls, the police did not consider it to be race related. Of course not. Yeah. Mr. 90s. Um. Now, at some point afterwards, Cheryl amended her complaint to include sexual assault. Um, the police found insufficient evidence. And here's where things get kind of sketchy. Uh, on July 15th of 1997, Cheryl's body was recovered from Lake Union in Seattle. Official cause of death was drowning. The Seattle Police Department's official report was death by suicide, uh, jumping from a very notorious bridge there in Seattle. Uh, the George Washington Memorial Bridge, also called the Aurora Bridge. Um, that bridge has 230, let me say that again, 230 suicide jumps attributed to it. Damn. Yeah, it's it's a known quote unquote suicide bridge. Oh, uh, there you go. Cool. Oof. Yeah, I know that that particular photo was very foreboding. foreboding. But yeah, um, that doesn't. Ugh. The bridge is so bad that they they put sign they put call boxes. You know, if you feel like you lost all hope, please call this number. They put you know, please do not jump. They put um, well, finally they put a fence. But for a while there, they just like literally had suicide hotline call boxes along the bridge. Oh yeah, um, so here's where things get a little sticky. Um, Everything that I've read or talked about up to now has been confirmed and verified via newspaper article, um, magazine articles, you know, credible sources, so to speak. Um, hereafter, I'm going to get into some stuff that I found in a Google rabbit hole, which appeared to be an archived forum post from back in the day. And so I cannot. Um, confirm the validity of anything that I'm about to read and I am reading it but I cannot confirm that these are from legitimate sources I mean I literally used my college's library to look up a lot of the news articles that I quoted from this but um, the rest of this stuff was found just sort of you know web archive type so here we go um, August 4 1996 Glass files lawsuit against King County Police. African-American race car driver Cheryl Glass has filed a lawsuit in Seattle's federal, Seattle's federal District Court, alleging that she was falsely arrested, beaten, and severely injured 
by King County police officers who were responding to a 9-11 emergency phone call she had placed earlier. Ms. Glass charges that her civil rights were violated and that the police were negligent in performing their duties. Named as defendants in the suit are King County and three King County police officers, Sheriff Redacted, Officer Redacted, and Officer Redacted. And I'm redacting those names because, again, I can't, I mean, I know that she filed the lawsuit, but I can't verify some of the other things. So I'm going to leave that alone and not call these and it's people not my important. name. Uh, prominent civil rights attorney, John R. Munster, will be representing her in the million dollar lawsuit for further information. Contact David Fisher, blah, 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 blah. Okay, background. Now, this is the part that came specifically, well, all of this came from Google, but obviously this, that was a press release of a lawsuit. This was apparently written by somebody, um, but it's a little erratic and I can't confirm any of this stuff. I don't have the, the hard documents to confirm this stuff. So I'm going to read it with a grain of salt and we'll talk about it. Uh, Cheryl Glass, raped by neo-Nazis, arrested, beaten by police. The fascists want her dead. Cheryl Glass, the only black female race driver, was outspoken about equal and civil rights until neo-Nazis gang raped her in her home. Soon after, she was beaten by police and injured, threatening her future in racing. Neighbors in her all-white all neighborhood of, Forest, of Lake Forest Park began a police-sanctioned campaign of harassment. I'm going to do everything I can to run you out of the neighborhood, said one while beating her with a rake. Now that quote isn't attributed anyway. It's just got quotations around it. So I don't even know what that means. And then it says hate crime number 93-401539. I don't know what that is. Uh, Cheryl was arrested and charged with nine crimes she didn't commit and beaten again. All charges against Cheryl were dismissed after the public was alerted to this injustice. Cheryl spent six months in a wheelchair with injuries to both hands and both feet due to police beatings. Cheryl's attorneys have filed a law have filed a claim for compensation for her injuries and have filed a lawsuit C96-10592, 10 July 1996. I'm assuming that might be a case number. Maybe. Um, if she can stay alive long enough. The police were caught illegally searching her van. Soon after, a massive gasoline leak flooded the engine and the driver's compartment. The fascists want her dead. Brief chronology of events. Gang raped by neo-Nazi swastikas inscribed on wall, 891. Cheryl is gang raped by two neo-Nazis in her bedroom, while the third assailant draws a three-foot swastika on her living room wall. 892, rape is found. Cheryl finds his home and discovers a Washington State police cruiser parked there. 1292, rape, rapist freed. King County prosecutor refuses to prosecute rapist. Case closed. Arrest and beaten by police. 593, police recruit neighbors. King County police recruit Cheryl's neighbors to join in a police effort to incarcerate her. 593, police arrest neighborhood harassment. King County police, 494, arrest and charge Cheryl nine times. Eight misdemeanors, one felony. Neighbors file all charges with police. 793, police beatings. On 71493, Cheryl calls 911 to report a 993 unidentified man. I don't know. Like I said, this is a little I wonder erratic. if that's like the police code or something. Well, yeah, but it's written like a date. So it's saying like oh. July 93, police beatings, 
on July 14th, 1993, Cheryl calls and and then it says nine slash 93, like September 93, but I don't know. Unidentified man. Uh, King County police officer redacted, falsely arrests Cheryl, handcuffs her and beats her in the back of the police car, injuring both feet. Uh, redacted charges her with assault, fourth degree. Cheryl spends the next six months in a wheelchair. September 16th, 1993, Cheryl calls 911 to report harassment and vandalism. Oh, I see. I think they were there. They got their typing formatted screwy. Ah, yeah. September 16th, 1993, Cheryl calls 911 to report harassment and vandalism by neighbors uh, redacted and redacted. Try to break both hands during an illegal search. December 93 restraining orders. King County Superior Court issues two restraining orders against Cheryl's neighbors. May 1994 charges dropped all criminal charges against Cheryl dropped. Claims filed, lawsuit filed, fascists want Cheryl dead. Uh, February 96, illegal police search. Cheryl's van is illegally searched by two Bothell police officers. March 1996, van gas leak, van sabotage, massive gas leak and engine leaking into passenger compartment. Mechanic says van should have burned and exploded. Fortunately, engine died instead. Will Cheryl survive long enough to see her suit through? This file is Cheryl's insurance policy. Please propagate it to interested parties on the net. Wow. That's a whole lot. Does any of it oh. say what those charges were brought against her for? Oh, I'm sure they were disorderly, resistant. I mean, silly. Assault, I mean, I'm sure they officer, were. Officer, blah, blah. Right. You know how that Silly goes. and frivolous, dumb stuff, but just. Ooh, that's a lot. My guess is it probably started with assault on a couple of the neighbors. And then when they tried to arrest her, they, you know, tacked on the resisting and assault and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, you know how those things go. Or I don't know if you know how those things go, but we know how those things I go. I know. I know how those things go. Mm. Um, so here's the claim. Here's the suit. Uh, Munster and Coning, attorney at law, yada, 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 Seattle, Washington. King County Council... King County Executive. Da, 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 that's the letterhead. R.E. Cheryl Lynn Glass. Claim is hereby made for damages for which King County is liable as follows. The conduct and circumstances which caused the claimant's damages and which give rise to this claim were that on or about July 14th, 1993, redacted, a King County employee unlawfully seized the claimant, arrested her without probable cause, subjected her to unreasonable force, assaulted her and negligently caused injury. Claimant was sub subsequently prosecuted based upon the incident in King County District Court, Shoreline Division. The charge was dismissed. Claim B, on or about 16 September, 1993, redacted and redacted King County employees, unlawfully seized the claimant, subjected her to unreasonable force, assaulted her and negligently caused injury. Claim C, during a period of time from May 1993 until spring of 1994, claimant was charged with a series of offenses. All charges were eventually dismissed. Number two, claimant received physical, emotional, and psychological injuries, sustained economic damages, and suffered violation of her constitutional rights. Number three, claimant's injuries were received at her residence. I'm not going to list the address on or about July 14th, 1993, and thereafter on or about September 19, 
1993 and thereafter, and in connection with the filing of charges and thereafter, including ensuing court proceedings. Number four, King County employees involved in incidents whose names are known are redacted and redacted. The King County Sheriff during the period in question was redacted. Mm. Yeah. Um, period newspaper article, Seattle Times, August 10th, 1991. King County police said the drawing of a swastika at the home of African-American auto racer Cheryl Glass probably had more to do with burglary than racial harassment. I have never seen anything like it in my 12 years in police work, police spokesman Rob Barnett said yesterday. But I would say they were committing a burglary. The swastika and the words vice mock an apparent misspelling of Weissmacht, German for white Stupid. power, were drawn with red lipstick inside Glass's home Tuesday morning during the apparent burglary. Several items were taken, including money, stereo speakers, and a telephone, all while Glass was asleep in her bed. Uh, in brackets, this story appeared before show came forward with details of the rape. Close bracket. Barnett said the writing may have been done to distract from the investigation. But he said investigators have not discovered, have not discounted racial harassment. Uh, Glass quoted, rather burn a cross in my front yard than come into my home. Somehow your yard's a little different. It chills her that they took money, uh, nightstand, bed. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, Glass, 29, had been a pioneer on the auto racing circuit. She began custom designing wedding gowns after the opulent gown of pearls, sequins, and crystals on antique lace she created for her own wedding to racing crew chief Richard Linwall in 1983 drew an avalanche of requests. 1987, she was honored by the National Coalition of 100 Black Women for being the only pro-Black woman racing driver in the country and for earning Rookie of the Year honors on the sprint car circuit. She also runs a catering service and studied electrical engineering. With that rich background, it angers her that someone can't see past one thing about her, her race. She's been married and divorced from two white men and has heard many disparaging comments about mixed marriages, about the Mercedes-Benz she drives, blah, 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 blah. King County Police Lieutenant Redacted said yesterday there are no suspects in the case. Yeah. Hmm. Was she married at the time that she was robbed? Do mm. we know? Is that No, clear? I don't think so. Okay. Hmm. I don't have dates on e either of the divorces, though. But mm. either she was um, no longer married to him or he wasn't home. But in any case, um, Black, female, intelligent, affluent. And, um, you know, racing is super sexist. I mean... Oh, and I believe that. That's weird and, and very complicated. And I did some background on this, but like um, women were involved in motorsports almost from the beginning, but around shortly after World War II, it just um, like they started pushing women out of the sport. You know, it was that whole, it's dangerous. It's men's work, blah, 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 blah. Um, so like, for instance, women raced at Le Mans in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, and then they were banned. And um, they didn't go back until, I got a newspaper article here, actually. April 11th, 1971. 
For the first time in 20 years, women may again be allowed to drive in the Le Mans 24-hour race, motor racing sources said today. The organizers, I'm not going to try to pronounce that. It's In America, we call it the ACO, but it's French and it's Automobile Club does something. Uh, Banned women from behind the wheel in 1951, but now there are signs that women's liberation has spread to motor racing in France. Uh, one of women's, one of Europe's top women rally drivers will co-pilot a Chevrolet Corvette with Henri Gredaire. Gredaire? Gredaire? I don't know. I don't speak French. In a new Le Mans three-hour sports car race in April, sources said organizers would judge her performance before making a final decision on the 24-hour race in June. Was there a specific reason why women were banned for racing or was it just because, you know, women, because, you know, in running when women were banned, it was because, you know, they thought your uterus might fall out. I, I don't know. Cause you know, they make up cause that was a lie. They just made that up. That was fake science. I mean, I mean yeah. Women been running <laughs> I mean, since the beginning of time, but I um, mean, I have felt some things during some runs, but I never felt like my uterus was falling out. I mean, I, I've, I've literally <laughs> seen pregnant women running. So clearly they just made that up but um uh you know I, th- there was a thing because remember there were there were no female horse jockeys women got pushed out of, i don't know when women quit riding horses or if women were just never around to, to ride race horses but because motor sports kind of descends from horse racing I think maybe they just adopted the idea that there were no female jockeys, so there shouldn't be any female race car drivers either. Uh, well, one of the other people will end up doing an episode about Michelle Mouton uh, was in a class winning Le Mans race in 1974, 75 or something like that. Um, and even in uh, like Pat Moss was a very well-regarded professional rally driver in the 50s, I think. And she's the sister of Sterling Moss, who is a British Formula One uh, champion. And she actually married a, a very famous race car driver, um, Carlson, one of, one, of the, one of the Nordic guys that was associated with Saab. And she retired sort of shortly thereafter and started having kids and stuff. But um, it's not like there had never been f- famous female race car drivers before it's just that they weren't um well yeah you know sexism it it is what it is because if you say women shouldn't be racing cars and you enforce that then that means there's no women racing go-karts there's no women racing in autocross there's no women racing in scca uh, et cetera, et cetera. So if you if you don't have any women in the feeder ladder pipeline, then there's no women to come out on the other end into the high end. I mean, it's the same thing we see now. I mean, you know, you have your Danica Patricks and your your Milka Dunno's and whatnot, and even your Sarah Fishers, your Janet Guthrie's, your Cheryl Glasses. These women existed, but you know they're one of one or one of two or one of three where you you start a car race and you've got 27 guys and three women in it. Well, if the population at large is 50-50, you've kind of stacked the deck against the women already. Right. Right. So um, now as to what specifically happened with Cheryl, you know, my opinion is, 
Well, let's talk about the racing part of it first. From a car racing point of view, I mean, she's black, she's female, she's young. That means, uh, and one of the guys, at least one of the guys she married was her crew chief at some point. So, um, oh, interesting. But there was, one of the articles I read said plainly, the car owner really didn't want to have nothing to do with her. And my guess is he probably brought her in as a gimmick. Mm-hmm. And, and didn't probably didn't think she was actually some of the guys on the crew be doing anything. didn't really want to, you know, so it's like a driver and a crew chief have to communicate. If the crew chief won't communicate with the driver, if the crew won't communicate with the driver, if the race engineer and sprint cars don't really have race engineers, but whatever, um, in any form of motorsport, if the people that set up and repair the car don't talk with the person that drives the car, that yeah, car cannot be successful. So if Cheryl had a particular dri- driving style and they didn't want to hear from the little uppity black girl who was smarter than any two of them put together, by the way, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's you know, probably, that, you could, that's it, you know, there is, therein lies your issue. So we know that was part of it. Um, the idea of a, of a child genius who was a very high achiever, all of a sudden hitting a wall and not being able to deal with that emotionally that might've been part of it. One of the articles uh, did talk about the fact that her attitude shifted very severely after the home and hundred. And again, I don't know how much of that is just, you know, historic sexism because she was a woman and she was pouting. And so they just decided that she'd gone off the deep end or, I mean, cause dudes, I mean, Lord knows dudes pout. I mean, I, I once almost threw my yes, golf in a lake. So, you know, <laughs> Dudes definitely pout, but when women pout it, it's always so emotional. But it's, it's um, because you're so emotional. And because there was such a microscope on her, because there was so much glare on her, because at you know 18 years old or whatever, she said, I'm gonna be in the Indy 500 in three years, and you know, all this, and I'm a front runner. I I, I plan to run near the front and um, you know, I expect to finish well in this race. You know, confidence, because again. And, and she was petite. She was a tiny little thing. She was like 115 pounds. So um, there was a lot of that, I'm sure, working against her. But then there's also the fact that racing is very Darwinian. Um, it's very easy to run out of talent in a race car for like no discernible reason, just because you just ran out of talent. But in her case, what I think, because she did so well early on, I think she made a couple of tactical mistakes and not having, um, you know, Willie T. Ribs talks about Uncle Uncle Bobby. I guess he was close oh. with Bobby Unser. Yeah, he talked about somebody. Yeah. If is, had, is that the mentor dude that was? Yes. The, so, the, car, the car dude that was always backing him. Uh, no, that was the, that Not, was the guy. No, that, that was, was the, the, the other dude. That was the Red Roof. Yeah, the money dude. Oh, yeah. okay. Somebody no, else. we're talking about a, a racing guy. But Oh, no, I um, don't think I'm... And really, you need both. You need a money person, but you also need a person who can help you with the, the, with the racing stuff. And right, the actual mechanics. If Cheryl did not have that kind of mentor, and I would imagine that she didn't, she didn't have anybody guiding her career. So there should have been somebody there that said, no, you don't need to do the home in 100. What you need to do is you've been doing pretty good here in the Northwest, but what you need to do is we need to get you out to India, to, to Iowa. We need to get you to Knoxville. We need to get you to, 
you know, some of these other places and learn how to drive on some of the, you know, work. Her yeah, way she didn't have pattern. a, she didn't have a guide. Right. She sort of went A, B, Z. Instead of going A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, I feel like she didn't work her way far enough up the ladder to develop the experience and knowledge to be able to deal with uh, some of the other stuff. And I, I can never prove that, you know, she's dead. I can't interview her. Um, you know, her mother has been doing some press because she's Cheryl has posthumously been inducted into some hall of fames and some other uh, been getting some other press. And so her name has sort of cropped back up and, and bubbled back to the surface in recent years. But, um, you know, it seems to me like she made a big leap. She jumped from the minors to the absolute world championship majors real quick. It didn't go well. And rather than regroup and continue to hone her craft, she started looking for other ways to get where she needed to be. You know, she jumped into she jumped into uh, Can-Am cars and then she jumped into stadium trucks and then she jumped into Indy Lights and probably she should have went back to to uh, Skagit with her sprint car and, you know, run more dirt races. And then if that didn't work out, she probably should have moved over a couple of states or down a couple of states or wherever there was more competition, better competition and get used to running that, you know, like I said, go to Iowa, go to Indiana, go to Pennsylvania, go to North Carolina, go to wherever, but just go and compete against other people other than that small pond that you have been playing in and develop that skill. Now, as to the suicide thing, um, so, you know, that, that gets into some really dark stuff because yeah. we're talking about a person who was used to being successful and maybe had hit a wall, but had also garnered some media attention, gone around the country as a public speaker, been given awards, um, was doing community stuff. She was featured on these, uh, they were like trading cards that were issued to school kids in the state of Washington that featured like, you know, Here's an astronaut. Here's a female astronaut from from Washington, and here's a female race car driver from Washington. And here's the, you know, she had gained so many accolades over the years. And then to maybe be living in a upscale neighborhood where you're not wanted, and um, you know, again, I can't confirm any of the stuff with the neighbors and the cops, but knowing what I know about being black in this country. Um, that stuff is not outside of the realm of possibility in my mind. And I know a lot of people listening or watching this video might say, what are you talking about? It's like all these police, I mean, today, they just convicted that cop in Minneapolis today. And I think so many people were shocked that he was actually convicted that, I mean, that, and there was video of him leaning on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes plus, And people were still shocked that he was convicted. So in, in that context, I can believe everything I read, you know, right. A couple of weeks ago. Cause that's not out of realm. Right. A couple of weeks ago, I got into a, a, a disagreement with somebody at a shopping location because, you know, it's COVID 
And in my opinion, she was too close. And the thing is, I didn't say anything to her. I just turned around and looked at her. I literally just turned around and stared at her. And her person that was with her kind of got the hit and said, back up, back up, back up. And when I turned back, she said something smart behind my back. And for whatever reason, that triggered me. And I went, (laughs) I went full in. And, you know, then it became a confrontation in a public place where the staff of the store was trying to maintain peace and order and I'm cussing and they're cussing and, you know, if the cops had showed up there, there's no telling what they would have said. Well, he did blah, blah, blah. Oh, we know, blah, blah, we then, know what they would have you know, done most likely. It tasers and good. handcuffs and, and everything else. So, you know, like I, I've had I've had a police officer pull his gun, pull her gun on me for sitting in a parked car outside an open nightclub at night. <laughs> right we parked our car with the intent of entering the nightclub and before we could get out of the car we had a policewoman in our back window with her weapon drawn screaming hands out of the car hands out of the car we're like what the car we're trying to get out the car to get in the club why are you why are you here i mean after she ascertained all of our identities you know ran all our ids she sent us on our way and the club was in the process of being raided, which is fine, but that doesn't make us being at the club illegal. It was an open public establishment. Right. You minding your business. So, I mean, you know, why is your weapon drawn on us? Why are you screaming at us? You know, I've stared down a, a cop's barrel more times than I can, than I care to talk about, despite the fact that I've never been arrested. I've never been arrested right. and I've never been charged with and, any kind of criminal violation. So, and I know your friends, y'all don't run in those kind of circles. <laughs> That's not even exactly like, of all the people to nerd. roll up. All, all my the people friends to are roll nerds. Up on, all the people to roll up on, you know, you guys my, aren't it. My peer group is a bunch of mechanical, electrical and architectural engineers from a nerd factory in central North Carolina. We don't get into trouble. So (laughs) why are we looking down gun barrels? So, okay, in that context and reading the things that were said, I can believe that the situations with the cops there in Seattle were real. I have no reason to disregard the swastika or the sexual assault. So all of that, pressure on somebody who was 36 so on top of the two divorces yeah um and you know we don't know what kind of physical pain she was in from the car crashes because i was watching the hurley haywood documentary and i saw hurley walking and i was like yeah he's got old race car driver walk because his feet had been crushed in a crash at some time in the 70s or 80s and you know, they can, they can get you walking again from that, but your feet are never right. Once the bones in your feet have been pulverized, you're never really right again. 
No, you're never the so, same after those kind of injuries. Uh, you know, and he, plus he's old. So he had that little weird old race car driver walk. I imagine that Mario Andretti and Emerson Fittipaldi probably walk a little funny too. Um, so, you know, we don't know what kind of pain she was in. Um, you know, people talk about, now for the record, her family has always denied the suicide. Um, they just, they don't imagine that being a thing um but we know that no one whose family member no sometimes sometimes they do because sometimes family members know that it has mental health issues but no but i mean sometimes sometimes they know sometimes people are on medications sometimes people are you know there's a known history of mental illness uh there's nothing like that documented for right um, i think that's rare though I think the people who know is, are, are very few. I think most people don't. Well, no, I'm, I'm not saying that they expect them to commit suicide, but within families, it is often known when somebody has mental health problems. Yeah, well, yes, now that is true. So, um, but again, without discounting any of that, what we know is that um, she started off doing some very incredible things in her life and then some things went bad and then some things went really bad and then her life ended. And it's unfortunate to me that there's not more said about Cheryl, but again, I think that's because of the way things ended. Um, You know, the last couple of years of her life were very dark. And despite everything she had done and all the accolades, there's just no way to make that story come out pretty, especially when there seems to be no good resolution to it in terms of you know, the, the stuff that was recorded, you know, the, the police weren't convicted and the, the rapist wasn't convicted. And I don't think the burglars were ever, you know, you know what I mean? Well, not even that, like the tragedy of how, how all of that ended on top of the fact that her last, you know, her last couple of races, she kind of went out on a, on a fizzle. So she didn't even kind of go out kind of at the top of her game. She went out in a had she lived longer, this would have been the point in the behind the race car or, you know, whatever the equivalent of behind music is. This would have been, (laughs) this would have been just random documentaries. (laughs) All right. So, so, so in this version of behind the race car, this is where she would have either. We'd say behind um, the visor, I guess. There we go. Behind the visor. So this is the point where she either would have got married, had some babies, lived happily ever after, became a successful full-time fashion designer. Um, her dresses are all over the runway in Paris and Milan. Or um, she spent the next three years, changed coaches, hit the gym, put on 20 pounds of muscle, started working with elite so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so from the whatever, whatever, whatever race car, you know, high really five Olympic in, team. That wasn't really a thing in the 90s. Well, you get my point. Yeah, you know, I, I whoever the the whoever the hot snot would have been and she, you know to, so she could stage her comeback she would have won the next big race or made it you know made it to indy or or whatever the story yeah. would have been um well i mean I that, think, that bar is still there because there still hadn't been a black woman to qualify for the indy 500 so um, right and 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 at this point you can't even say that she was close because she wasn't 
close, but she was probably the closest somebody has been um, as well, a black female. What's funny is that, of course, you know, she crossed paths with Willie there in what, 91. And then a few years later, of course, he would qualify for the Indy 500. Oh, no, he met Cheryl in the fall of 90. And of course, he was in the Indy 500 the next year. So, you know, of course he would know because, you know, unicorns, but right. I think, well, we can understand why there's never been a Disney story or I, I'm surprised somebody hadn't written a book. Maybe there is, if there is one, I couldn't find it because I did, I did an extensive search on her name in multiple venues of, of media and I I found what I found and I, I found a lot of newspaper stuff. I found a lot of magazine stuff. There were articles I couldn't find. Like I know that she was in a piece in 17 magazine. I know she appeared in uh, what was it? Black sophisticates, you know, black hair, whatever. Um, I know she had some modeling gigs where she appeared in some national print media. I'm assuming that was probably Ebony and essence. Um, I couldn't find the essence article that she was featured in. I know it exists, but I could not actually find a PDF of it. So she did a lot of stuff and I, I got a ton of newspaper clippings and it's like, you wish there was more to the story and you wish it had a better yeah. ending, you know, a happier ending, but we, we know that these things don't always end happy in real life, but I want to close with something else um, that Willie T. Ribbs said about her. Here's what he had to say. She was remarkable. I know how hard it is trying to break into this sport. And her and those little ovals where she raced, that's where my respect came for her. She had the guts times three. One, for her to take on the bull rings where she raced. And two, as a woman, when women weren't doing what she did. And three, as a black woman, and there wasn't anybody like her around. She was doing this while Barack Obama was still in high school, man. I'm serious. She was way ahead of her time. And he's right. Um, she was special she's gone and i hope that more people learn about her and i'm hoping that this helps move that ball a little further down the road